Good to see all of you on this July 4th weekend. Um, so as you just heard, Elizabeth just read from Matthew chapter 5, we are in a sermon series called Flourish. And we are in sermon number 10, actually, in this series, which is on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Before we get into the sermon, I just wanted to highlight one more of the announcements that's in the bulletin. It's kind of a special announcement regarding our kids' ministry. And some of you saw a couple emails that went out this week. If you're checking those emails with regard to a big transition, we have teachers that teach each of our classes, and it just so happens that this summer, this year, all of our teachers, all at the same time, are transitioning out. So our, our children's director, Christy Sosa, is working on hiring some new interns. We have a couple that we've secured, but we're still in process there. So I'm, I'm sharing that so that you would pray. I'm sharing that so that you would, if you know any good candidates who would want to be a part of our intern teaching program, that you would let me know or let Christy know, and I'm also sharing that because this summer we're going to need uh, to volunteer, to step up, and to fill some of those gaps. So just wanted to let you know about that. And also today, for those of you especially whose kids are in pre-K and K in, t- in that class, uh, Evita, the teacher of that class, this will be her last Sunday, so we're going to miss Miss Avida, and be sure to uh, say goodbye to her. She's uh, pursuing full-time work in her career in accounting and in finance, so that's, that's where she's headed. So back to the sermon and the message. Um, Jesus has been taking us through, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, six major contrasts. Last week, we had a guest preacher. He's moving on into the next section where Jesus is talking about our spirituality. What is a genuine spirituality that's not just for show in our giving, in our praying, and in our fasting? We're going back uh, from that passage, back into these six contrasts, where Jesus is correcting these major distortions of the Bible's message and its application in very practical and, and everyday issues of our lives. He's covered anger and lust and marriage and divorce in retaliation, and in telling the truth. Today, in those verses that we just heard, verses 43 through 48, this is really like the culmination, the conclusion to this section. It's the first time in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous and maybe his most important body of teaching, that he has brought up his most important and central concept for human flourishing, for becoming people who bring flourishing to the world. And what is that concept? It's love. First time in the sermon that he has brought up love. Not just love in general, not just a sentimental love, but love for our enemies. Most scholars believe that Jesus saved this very intentionally uh, for last. Because out of the six distortions, out of the six misrepresentations of God's word, this one was probably the worst. This one was probably the most serious because both the religious leaders of the day and at the time and the everyday uh, common person in Israel, they were using the Bible to limit the scope, to shrink the extent of whom they were called to love. And not only were they limiting the, the extent of love, but they were also using the Bible to promote hate, hate of certain groups of people 
hate of certain individuals. And so Jesus is coming at this at the culmination, at the conclusion of this section, and he's coming at it very strongly, very much uh, directly, because this is a contradiction, he tells us, of God's very character. And this is a compromise of the central command in the Bible to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So what we're going to see here this morning is that in order for us to flourish as human beings, in order for us to be the kind of people, in order for us to be the kind of church that can bring flourishing into the lives of other people, Jesus says we must learn to repent of our hate and learn to love even our enemies. So how might this bring flourishing to the world? A good question, especially if you're exploring Christianity, if you're not sure about Jesus, you're still processing where you stand with him. A good question to ask uh, about any worldview that you're evaluating um, is to subject this worldview or this belief system to a threefold test. It's really three questions. There's the intellectual question, the emotional, spiritual question, and the social question. I brought this up before. But intellectually, you always want to ask, does, does this worldview, does this belief system offer a very coherent and reasonable explanation for life's big questions? That's the intellectual question. Emotionally, does it address the deep longings of my soul? Does it address the deep hurt and pain in my soul? But then there's a social question, and that is this. If everyone believed this fully and embraced this wholeheartedly and lived it out consistently, would it create the kind of world that I would want to live in? So we just take that one question, that social question, and apply it to this part of the Sermon on the Mount. If everyone lived this consistently, what kind of world would it create? We can imagine that. What if tomorrow... Everyone in the world, all of us, and every single person in this whole planet was granted supernaturally the ability to love their enemies. What would that look like? What might the headlines in the newspaper be on the following day? If none of them had anything to do with hate or the resulting, um, the resulting actions and pain that come from hate. We can think about the opposite. There's a quote in uh, one of the commentaries that I read this week. That's, he, the, the author said this, maybe a little bit harsh, but he said, the history of the church, just like the history of humankind in general, can be written as a history of closing oneself off from this commandment, to love our enemies. You think within the history of the church, all the denominations, all the splits, all the divisions within the church, doctrinal battles, conflict within the church. You think of the history of humankind in general with wars, conflicts, divisions, oppression, injustice, violence, and racism. All these boil down to the failure of all of us to love our enemies. So for in, order, in order for us to answer that question, well, how is it? How can we even love our enemies? Is that possible? I think we have to answer two questions first. And you'll see, if you have your outline in your worship folder, I'm going to ask these three questions. Who is my neighbor, number one? Number two, who are my enemies? And then thirdly, how can we love our enemies? So first, first question, who is my neighbor? In our call to confession this morning, we read from Luke chapter 10, if you want to flip there, you can just 
re-familiarize yourself with that passage. There, one of the religious leaders is testing Jesus. So he's coming up to him. He's, a, he's an expert in the Bible, and he tests him, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks him a question. He says, well, what do you think the Bible says about that? He says, love God and love neighbor. And Jesus says, you're right, do that. But then, as Luke writes it, wishing to justify himself, he asked, well, who is my neighbor? Now, why did he ask that question? What was behind that question? What was behind that question was another test. Uh, This expert in the Bible was testing Jesus, and he was trying to see if Jesus would divide that category of neighbor into two categories. In essence, saying, Jesus, aren't there some people who just don't fit the definition of my neighbor? They're in another category altogether. They're outside of God's call to love. Sometimes when we we tell our kids, like I try to tell my kids like I did on Saturday, clean the bathroom. That's your job. That's your chore. Well, they might come back, and I'll I'll do a check, and I'll look and see what they did, and I'll say, you didn't mop the floor, and you didn't, you know, you didn't take out the trash, and they'll say, you didn't tell me to take out the trash and mop the floor, and I said, that's a part of the whole category of cleaning the bathroom. That's included there. So this expert in the Bible was trying to exclude some people from the category of neighbor. If you look at verse 43, back in our text, Jesus says, you have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The first part of that verse, where is it from? It's a quotation from Scripture, from Leviticus 19, 18, one of Jesus' favorite passages, where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. But then there's the other part, hate your enemy. Where did that come from? Who was saying that? The answer is, it's not found in Leviticus, and that's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. Now, Leviticus 19.18, granted, it does focus on loving your fellow Israelite, your fellow countrymen. But later, in verse 34, in Leviticus 19, it says, You shall treat the stranger, or the alien, who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were also strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So I just want to pause right there for an observation. If you're going to try to limit the extent of this command to love your neighbor as yourself, if you're going to try to redefine Scripture and to promote hate, you will both have to add on to and use a selective reading of Scripture. You'll have to add to Scripture and you'll have to take away, which was what was happening in the time. But it's interesting to note, as I was studying this this week, that scholars have been asking that, well, who was saying hate your enemy? Was that a slogan out there? Was that something people were promoting in the culture? And what they found is that it's really hard to locate any writings of that time where people are writing, hate your enemy, hate your enemy. There are a few such places that we find. But if it was such a serious problem and Jesus said, this is a problem that needs to be addressed, we might expect to find more fragments of writing or writings of people who are promoting hateful messages. Why don't we see it expressed more? Why don't we see it written more? I think the answer is this, that hate usually operates undercover. It operates undercover in the way that we redefine who is our neighbor. 
Jesus is exposing something that people were thinking, people were feeling, people were living out, even if they weren't verbalizing it and maybe even if they didn't realize it. They were saying, I don't really hate anyone. I wouldn't say it like that. I don't hate anyone. I'm not that kind of person. But in Jesus' time, the people who were listening to this sermon, they had some very clear enemies. The Romans were occupying their land. They were oppressing them and their faith. They would be under the category of Gentiles that Jesus brings up. Then there, there, there were their fellow Jews who were selling out and working with the Romans for their own gain. Those were the tax collectors, another category of person that Jesus brings up. And they had a very hard time thinking of Gentiles and tax collectors as people who they were called to love. So when it came down to it, when it came down to answering that question, who is my neighbor? They didn't want them to be on that list. They were the enemy, a different list. But maybe your first reaction to this passage was kind of like mine this week as I was searching my heart and thinking about this. Who is my enemy? I don't have any enemies. I'm just a nice person. I love all people. All's good. And I'm just cool with everyone. I'm not a hater. Jesus is challenging us here, saying that in each one of us, there is an impulse to limit, to narrow the definition of neighbor, and to shrink the sphere of people whom we're called to love. Sometimes it's overt, but most of the time, it's undercover. It's in the way that we divide the world into categories, into us versus them. It's the way that we place people into groups and label people. It's the way that we react and relate to people who have different faith backgrounds, different backgrounds, uh, beliefs, and values than we do. And so Jesus says we have to be very cautious because when we do that, when we categorize, label people, when we put people into an us versus them category, then we are on the road, if not already traveling, down towards the path of hate. In Luke 10... Back to Luke 10 for a moment. When Jesus answered the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus was intentionally, in his answer, he told this story, a story you maybe are familiar with of the Good Samaritan. He told this story, and it made everyone super uncomfortable so that the point would hit home. Because what he did is he made the enemy the hero of the story. The Samaritan whom you hate, your mortal enemy, he understands the Bible better than you, and he lives it out more faithfully than you are. So when we answer the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus will, with his answer, make all of us feel uncomfortable. So what might that look like today? Who is my neighbor? Here are a few thoughts on that. If I am a Democrat, then a Republican is my neighbor and vice versa. If I am an American citizen, an immigrant is my neighbor, documented or not. If I am a follower of Jesus, a follower of Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, or an atheist, whether they're nice or not nice, is my neighbor. If I am an American, an ISIS extremist is my neighbor. If I am a heterosexual, those with same-sex attraction, are my neighbor, and vice versa. If I have a home, the homeless are my neighbor. 
If I am a Caucasian, an Asian Indian, if I'm a Mexican, my kids are all three of those, (laughs) then people of different ethnicities are my neighbor. Let's take a deep breath. Just brought up a lot of sensitive topics and issues, difficult tensions, maybe raised a lot of questions for you. And I would say that's okay. Jesus wants us to be uncomfortable when we answer this question, who is my neighbor? The point is this, not to remove the tension, not to answer all the questions, but the point is, to, is this, that there is no category of person who is outside the category of neighbor, so there is no person who is outside the call of Jesus to me to love. It's fundamental before any label, before even all the tension, that we see everyone as our neighbor. One of the commentaries, I never thought about this, that I was reading this week, it made this point that isn't it interesting that Jesus, is com- he commands us to love, to love our enemies, plural, it's always plural, and to love our neighbor, singular. Why is that? Why is neighbor always singular? Why isn't love your neighbors? And I think it's because of our tendency to place people into groups, to label people, to do this us versus them kind of thinking. When it's the other, when it's the group, when it's those other people, we tend to depersonalize the individuals who are a part of that group. But the call of God and the call of Jesus is to love our neighbor, the individual, the person. I think that personalizes, that humanizes other people when we treat them as individuals. So the one person I couldn't get out of my mind when I was preparing this sermon this week was Fred Rogers, my fellow Presbyterian minister from back in the day. You may know him as Mr. Rogers, and you may have grown up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Um, He had a definition of who is my neighbor that I thought was great. Anyone you happen to be with, at the moment, is your neighbor. And I don't know, some, this was like the 50th anniversary uh, just recently of the, the first showing of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And as people were commenting on social media about this, this really incredible story came out about Mr. Rogers. Some of you may have seen it. Somebody shared it on Twitter. His name was Anthony Bresnikon. He was a college student at Pitt. He's an author. He's a writer. Now, he was going through, he says, this really hard time, really struggling, feeling hopelessness, feeling anger, and he's in his dorm room, and he walks past the TV, and he sees Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood playing in the dorm room, and he pauses, and it's like, this is a beautiful day in the neighborhood, you know, won't you be my neighbor and all that, and so Mr. Rogers is on the screen, and he says, what do you do with the mad that you feel? Very Mr. Rogers kind of question, and it said that hit him. And he just stopped there in the dorm room. He was all alone. He was like, yeah, I need to think about that. And it calmed him down for the time being. And then he says a few days later, he's going to his class. No, actually, he's going to the newspaper where he was working. He gets into the elevator, and who walks out of the elevator but Mr. Rogers himself? (laughs) He was like, what? Mr. Rogers lived in, in Pennsylvania. And so he was like, wow, this is crazy. And he was having like celebrity shock. But he said, I, Mr. Rogers, or I don't know what he called him, Mr. Fred Rogers, thanks. 
I saw your show the other day, and I really needed it. And so right then, he says, Mr. Rogers stopped, and he took off his scarf. He sat down, and he said, do you want to tell me what was upsetting you? And he went on, uh, this, this man, Anthony Bresnikon, went on to talk about losing his grandfather. And at this point, he was interacting with Mr. Rogers, and he was choking up, and he was crying. And at the end, he said, I'm sorry, I probably made you late. You know, you're very important, and I'm sure you had to be somewhere. And Mr. Rogers said to him, sometimes you are right where you need to be. Now, I know it's Mr. Rogers, and that's a children's TV show, and maybe it's a little sappy. But the heart behind that is the heart of love for neighbor. I love a, a neighbor who is my neighbor to any person, especially one in need, that I have an opportunity to bless, to serve, or to love. That's question one. Who is my neighbor? Question two, who are my enemies? Jesus does not say here, you know what? You just need to realize you don't have any enemies and just be done with it because everyone is your neighbor. He says, even though you have enemies, they are still your neighbor and you're called to love them. And so this is very hard. Maybe it's the hardest part of the entire Sermon on the Mount that enemies don't just disappear and we just all of a sudden have a rosy outlook on life. Jesus acknowledges how hard this is. He says it's beyond what everybody else is doing. He says, you look at how people are treating each other. It's easy to love people like you, but he says we are called to something more than that. It's a love that goes beyond what is natural, which is why in verse 45, he grounds this call to love, the love we're to have for our neighbors in God's love for us, in the way that God loves even those who work against him and even those who work against his will. In our selection of quotes in the very beginning of your worship folder, there's a quote from Alfred Plummer. He says, to return evil for good is devilish, to return good for good is human, to return good for evil is divine. This is something that is outside of our own natural ability and strength. So in order for us to love our enemies, we need to re-engage that question, well, who are my enemies? And we need to answer that question from God's perspective, looking at our enemies through the eyes of God. What would that look like? Well, first, the first part of the, the answer to that question, I think, is to acknowledge that my enemies are real. My enemies are real. Jesus doesn't do it away, like we said, with that category of enemies. He doesn't say, follow me. You won't have any enemies. You'll be happy with everyone, and you'll just be filled with niceness wherever you go, and life will go okay with you. He says at a broader level, as my followers, there will always be groups of people who will not believe what you believe, not value what you value. They will work against what you believe is true and good and for the flourishing of humanity. And even at a personal level, there will be people in your life who will oppose you and work for your harm. And some of you are thinking maybe immediately of some people that come to mind who have caused you pain and hurt in your own lives. And what we need to see is that Jesus is not compromising or watering down the difference between good and evil. He retains those categories. He says God showers his blessing on those who are good and evil. He is not telling us to be indifferent toward injustice. He retains those categories. He says Jesus showers 
or God showers his blessings on those who are just and unjust. He's not just telling us to be nice or passive or ignore wrongdoing or be a doormat. Because none of those things describe how God loves us. He calls us to, verse 48, perfection here. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be whole. The word uh, in teleos, the word in Greek is teleos, meaning whole. Be whole. Be complete in love as God is. And Jesus won't accept anything less than no evil, no injustice in us and in his world, which means he will deal with it. So enemies are real. Evil and injustice is real. But they are still, even our enemies, our neighbor whom we are called to love. Who are my enemies? They are real. Secondly, my enemies are people like me. When we put people into categories of us versus them and label them according to whatever, their political party, their religious affiliation, ethnicity, we lose sight of them as God sees them as people. My enemies are people like me. That means we all share a common dignity and glory. Martin Luther King, he wrote a sermon on this passage. I would encourage you to read it. It's phenomenal. He was in prison when he wrote this sermon called Love Your Enemies. And in this sermon, which was definitely not theoretical for him, he wrote this about our enemies. He said, an element of goodness may be found even in our worst enemy. Each of us is something of a schizophrenic personality, tragically divided against ourselves. A persistent civil war rages within all of our lives. We know God's image is ineffably etched in his being, speaking of our enemies. They are not beyond the reach of God's redemptive love. We share a common dignity and glory made in the image of God. We also share a common enemy. We share a common enemy with our enemies. The Bible teaches us that our greatest enemies are not other people. Ephesians 6 says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. But there are those things that keep me from the wholeness that God has intended for me. The things that keep me from the end which I have been redeemed and saved by Jesus. The categories the Bible uses are sin or the flesh the world, and the devil, the unholy trinity in Scripture. And so my enemies, whoever they are, like me, have been afflicted and affected by sin. They've been broken by living in a fallen world and by the spiritual forces of evil. But whoever my enemy is, I share this in common with them, made in the image of God to reflect His glory, His beauty, and His goodness with great potential to bring beauty and flourishing to the world, but also broken by sin, with great potential to bring brokenness and pain into the world. So what does that change? If our enemies are real and they are people like me, what does that change practically? I think at least three things. It changes our minds about some of our enemies. Sometimes we will realize that the hostility is more on our side and not on their side. That it was our prejudice, it was our bias, and our fear to see some people as enemies. And when we love and see them as God does, when we get to know them as individuals, we change our minds about them. And so we have to examine our own hearts and repent and ask the question, where am I guilty of making enemies 
Who do I exclude? Who do I avoid? Who do I denounce or condemn or look down upon? Sometimes our mind will change. Secondly, it changes our fears. Because one of our greatest fears when it comes to loving our enemies is if I don't react against them, if I don't stop what they're doing, then who will stop this? Who will deal with this? And the answer is God will. If God is aware of evil and justice, if He loves even the evil and the unjust, it doesn't mean He's ignoring it. We can leave justice and vengeance to God alone. Romans 12, 14 and following, same topic, Paul is addressing, and he says this, Bless those who persecute you. Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. The point in that passage is leave vengeance and justice to God. And for the Christian, an enemy cannot take away our identity or our security as the children of God, which is ours in Jesus. And for the Christian, the worst an enemy or a persecutor could ever do to us is death, which only fast-forwards us toward the process of us becoming whole and complete in the presence of God. And so it changes our fear. Lastly, it changes the goal of our disagreements. We will have disagreements. We will have conflicts. But it's not to win or to vanquish or to eliminate all of our enemies. The presence of our enemies in our personal lives as Christians Jesus says, this is not the thing that's keeping you from a flourishing, blessed life. In fact, he says, this is how you become more and more reflective of the family image. So this is not an obstacle for you to enjoy the blessed life. This is actually a part of how God brings you on the path of you reflecting more and more what it means to live out your identity as one of his children. So it changes the goal of our disagreements. Who's my neighbor? Who are our enemies? And lastly, well, how do we love them? How do we love our enemies? Whether we're talking about personal enemies or individuals or groups, this is not easy. This may be the most difficult part of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a movie I saw a number of years ago called Joy Noel. It's a French movie, and it's a movie about something some of you may have heard about, something that happened in history, World War I. There was a Christmas truce that happened along many of the battlefronts uh, in Germany. And so this movie is about one of these battle lines where on one side you have the German army, and on the other side you had the French and the Scottish army. And so they've been engaged in many harsh battles with each other, and this line was just not moving. And so in between, there was this no man's land. So this movie is about what happened on Christmas Eve during this war and in, in, in this uh, battlefront. Uh, the fighting had, had stopped, and so that at least had happened. And the Germans had sent an opera singer in to celebrate Christmas Eve with the soldiers, and they were singing their carols. And so the Scots heard this, and everybody paused, and all was quiet. And they said, well, what do we do? So they responded with their own song. They got their bagpipes out, and they began singing. 
And in the movie, you see the silence on the German side. Everyone's listening. What do we do? And so soon, they kind of pop their heads up. The Scottish army is popping up here. And you see a soldier from the German side. He comes out and he crosses into the no man's land. He's carrying a Christmas tree. And he's singing, O come all ye faithful. And the Scottish army's kind of looking at each other. What do we do? The guy with the bagpipes starts playing along. And soon everyone is singing. And so after that, Everybody comes out of their foxholes, and there's a, there's a soccer match happening. People are exchanging pictures of their loved ones and exchanging gifts and drinking together, and it's just this crazy party for one night on Christmas Eve. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful movie. And the point, I think, that struck me, and I think the point of the movie is that as you're listening to these lyrics, O come, all ye faithful, coming to the realization, and I think the soldiers were coming to the realization that we are not first enemies of each other. We are both enemies of something much greater. We've been unfaithful to God's love for us. We both are on the opposite side. God, we are working against him. In order to have a posture of love toward our enemies, the Bible says that we have to first identify ourselves as enemies of God. Romans 5.10, Colossians 1.21. Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Colossians 1.21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And so the gospel is this, that Jesus is the reconciliation. He, through his death, has reconciled the enemies of God so that we might become the friends of God. It's reconciliation of enemies through substitution and suffering. Jesus was treated as the enemy of God so we could be welcomed as friends and loved as the children of God. Sometimes that's hard for us to to feel. An enemy of God? Maybe I was just in the neutral zone with God. But the Bible challenges us to identify our sin, a person who has been hostile, opposed to God's glory, his love, and his will is an enemy of God. And we won't be able to love our enemies if we deny or minimize the hostility that we have shown to God. And we won't be able to love our enemies if we minimize how fully, in spite of being enemies, that we have been loved and reconciled and welcomed by God. Just a few closing practical thoughts from this passage. So what does it mean to love our enemies? I think the best way to answer that question is to ask, how did Jesus love his enemies, the tax collector, the Gentile of the day? He went to them, he welcomed them, he ate with them, he spent time with with them. 
many of us in, in concept would agree with this idea. We're to love our neighbors. We're to love all people, especially those who are not like us. But in practice, we spend our time only with people who believe and value what we do and look like we do. And so Jesus calls us to go beyond, to find people to bless who are not like us, to get to know them as individuals, to hear their stories. And Jesus also says we are to pray for them. Something happens when we pray for another person. I think it's the practical way that we begin to see another person, not as a group, not as a category, not as a label, but as an individual, as a person. It's so hard to retain hate when we're praying for someone, to know flourishing, to know wholeness, and to experience that in the gospel. In a few minutes, we're going to transition to celebrate communion together. And this, this meal that we, we share regularly is an incredible picture of how it is that God can love those who are opposed to Him. How it is that God loved even His enemies. And often, when I'm answering the question, who should come and partake and join us in this meal? The answer is, this, this table is for all those who have received Jesus by faith. This table is for all those who have been baptized and welcomed into His church. And the only thing that we bring to this table is our need. The only thing we bring to this table is the fact that we realize that we can't earn our place here. But as I was thinking about this message in relationship to our celebration of, of communion, I was thinking that maybe we should say there is a ticket of admission to come to this table. And that ticket of admission is our confession, that we were once enemies. And if we could put a banner over this table, a banner of welcome, that banner might read, welcome to my enemies. Here's how much I love you. As you come forward, let that sink in. This is a time of, of confession, of repentance. It's also a time of, of celebration and great joy. That this is how great the love of God is towards us. That we would be reconciled, that we would be friends of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these words, they strike us, they challenge us. We resist the idea that we would have hate, that we would have enemies, and yet we realize we have divisions and inconsistencies within our hearts and souls. And I pray that today you would sink this call more deeply into our lives, that where we do need to turn away from from the ways that we have categorized, labeled, and even hated other people, that you would give us the supernatural ability to do that. If there are people in our lives on a personal level who are enemies, I pray that even during this time that you would give us 
your eyes to see them as you see them. We pray now for our enemies, even those who stand against the things we hold most precious. We pray not only uh, that that we would be able to see them from your perspective, that we would be able to bless them, and that we would be able to enter into their lives with a renewed sense of gracious, welcoming, and love. Use this time that we spend at your table to comfort us. Use this time that we spend at your table to remind us of how great your love is for us in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.